It's July 21, 2023. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week on the podcast, biologics for Bichette's. How long should you hold the methotrexate? One or two weeks, that is. And why Dr. Peter Nash of Brisbane, Australia, doesn't return my phone calls. First, really important, 988. 988 is um, a number, it's that three-digit number like 411 or 211 or whatever you like to dial for emergency services. There's now an emergency service 988 for suicide prevention. It's been out for a year. This is the suicide and crisis hotline. It's been out since July of 2022. You don't need to be suicidal. You don't need to be in crisis. You do need to call. You know, depression is a big issue with a lot of our patients. We should be advertising this because this line is always working even when you are not. And Lord knows when your patients might need it. It's really important that that should be on the tip of your tongue and you should be free and easy with that number. 988, Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. A study from the National Data Bank uh, run by Caleb Mashad um, had a nice analysis of which is associated with a uh, major adverse cardiac event risk, opioids or nonsteroidals, as you, you think it'd be nonsteroidals, right? And opioids are often used when we're afraid about cardiac risk. Well, this study of over 19,000 patients in their data set um, showed that opioids and nonsteroidals had a similar MACE, M-A-C-E, risk of either 20 or 19 events per 1,000 patient years. Um, But opioids actually had a higher risk of mortality, 13.5 versus 10.8 per 1,000 patient years, with a 33% increase in the hazard ratio. Also, opioids had a higher risk of VTEs, a 41% higher risk, both of those being significant. Hence, the adage that opioids are safer than nonsteroidals um, is probably not true. But there's a lot of confounding here, is there not? Who you give nonsteroidals to and who you give an opioid to. Uh, And both of them come with their baggage, and the baggage may very well be driving some of these risks. But I I pointed out to say that the, the blanket statement, opioids are safer than nonsteroidals, is probably not true, and that's evidenced by this data from uh, Dr. Michaud and colleagues. Um, another study, plantar fasciitis. Um, this is a, you know something that we all treat, we all think we're expert at, um, and, and I think that it's often mistreated. This study, 180 patients with uh, plantar fasciopathy showed there was no difference when patients were treated, and I think it was a 12-week trial, of g- getting patient advice with a heel cup or um, patient advice with lower limb uh, stretching, or um, patient advice, lower limb stretching, and corticosteroids. Turns out they're all the same. So that means everything works or nothing works. Well, that means maybe you need time for a lot of these conditions. My treatment of plantar fasciitis is an aggressive stretching regimen. I don't use a heel cup, although I do recommend in certain cases um, uh, certain shoe inserts, going to a running store, getting a really good cup 
heel shoe insert, like a Spenco um, shoe insert. And I almost never do um, heel injections. Number one, they hurt like hell. And, uh, and two, I have not found that they give you that expedient relief that you want to see with a corticosteroid injection. Another analysis looked at pain, specifically looking at whether the availability of medical cannabis actually has changed prescribing habits for other pain medicines, including opioids. This is looking at 12 states that have um, medical cannabis available uh, and specifically looked at almost a half million people with chronic non-cancer pain. And over a three-year period, basically, we look prior to legislation and the availability of cannabis products, uh, and then after, really no change. change. is less than 0.5% or 0.1% uh, as far as the use of opioids, non-opioid prescriptions, other pain meds, chronic pain procedures. So the pain marches on. You know, that is what we treat most, and I think that's what we're probably not as good as we think we are at. Australia came up with some interesting public health numbers this past week. In their, just from their accounting, um, 30% of their population has a chronic musculoskeletal condition. That's about 7 million individuals, costing Australia $14.6 billion, or about 10% of total healthcare spending in 2020. So overall, 4 million people have back problems, 3 million with arthritis in general, almost a million with osteoporosis, and about a half a million with rheumatoid arthritis. This is why Peter Nash is not calling me. He's too darn busy. Please help the man. Um, He needs a break. He needs to enjoy himself and call me. But I, I point out this data because I often point to what is the percentage of musculoskeletal complaints. I write chapters on this. It's always said to be 20. It's closer to 25. In Australia, it's 30% as a presenting complaint to the primary care doctor. If you look at all people who see primary care doctors, up to 50% do have musculoskeletal complaints, maybe not the primary, but a secondary or tertiary. A nice review from Kevin Winthrop in the past week, um, looking at the immunogenicity of vaccines and the effects of the DMARDs that we use. Um, And basically he shows that the greatest effects or non-effect of the vaccine is seen when we use B-cell depletion therapies. That would be rituximab and belimumab. But also with mycophenolate, cytoxin, azathioprine, and apatacept, I was surprised at. No effect with IL-6 inhibitors and hydroxychloroquine. And then variable effects with methotrexate and steroids, with both of those being very dose- dependent and also vaccine dependent. When I reviewed this a number of years ago with Kevin and a bunch of other people, you know, methotrexate was a clear-cut loser when it came to, you know, worsening vaccine responses. So he seems to have softened his message there. I'd have to read the whole article to know the whole story, but it's worth the review if you're interested in this topic. A really interesting article from Jay Room about the use of an IL-6 inhibitor, tocilizumab, in patients with refractory bichettes. 30 patients having failed steroids and whatnot, they showed that tocilizumab, when given for six months, was effective in 83%. Now, there was no control group. There was no placebo. We don't know what they would have done if we'd given them applesauce instead of um, tocilizumab. But nonetheless, 18 out of the 30 had a complete response 
and seven had a partial response. Um, they also had good responses, complete responses in two thirds of patients with uveitis, 60% with CNS bichettes, mucosal disease, 40%, articular disease less, 21%. Overall, the use of the tocilizumab did lead to steroid sparing. I think this merits a really well done trial. Congratulations for doing that research. So, you know, in 2018, Park et al. had, uh, actually the year before, Park et al. had a plenary session presentation at ACR, and they published it in 2018, showing that when you give influenza vaccine, you should hold the methotrexate for two weeks. They did a follow-up to this. It was published this past week in uh, Arthritis and Rheumatology, showing that you only need to hold for one week. So in this follow-up study, that 184 patients, they assessed them at week four and week 16, after giving influenza, and the patients were divided into two groups, holding methotrexate for one week, holding methotrexate for two weeks. The issue was, it was going to be, is it non-inferior, holding just one week versus two? And in fact, it was. The humoral responses, fourfold elevation of titers to the vaccine was 69% versus 75% at four weeks, not significant, a difference at 16 weeks, 78% versus 79%, again, not significant. The other good news, no flares, no worsening of RA activity, holding methotrexate for either one week or two weeks. The new standard is holding methotrexate for one week. Many of you have already been doing this because this was presented at last year's ACR, I believe. Um, a nice report about um, hydroxychloroquine non-adherence. We know that's a big problem in lupus. We know that non-adherence to drugs is a big problem throughout rheumatology. Uh, in this study, a study of over, I think, 16, 1,800 patients with lupus, they had 660 who they had serial hydroxychloroquine assessments, um, serum levels on. Um, and the median level was 388. That's sort of a low-level effectiveness, range 244 to 566. Not really getting to high levels there. Um, and only 7.3% of their cohort qualified as having severe non-adherence. Um, can't remember what that cutoff was, but it looks below 100. Uh, and what they showed was if you were a patient who had severe non-adherence to hydroxychloroquine, it didn't show up as a clinical consequence in any clinical vari variables that might, it might associate with. However, severe non-adherence was independently associated with a 3.3 higher risk of SLE flares, um, a twofold higher risk of damage as measured by the slick damage index, and more mortalities, a fivefold higher rate of mortalities, although in the overall quarter of 606, there were 11 patients who died. It was more likely in those who were non-adherent to hydroxychloroquine. Again, one of our uh, things we really have to battle against uh, in managing these patients. I want to end with five cases uh, I've received over the last few weeks. Questions to Cush or Ask Cush anything. You can send me a, a question or a case um, on the website, on the email. There's a box in the lower left-hand corner. You click on it. You can record it, or you can email me. I think I, I'd like to hear you hear your voice. Uh, the first three are um, email questions. The last two are recorded questions. Um, Omar Ahmed Hamed uh, asks about uh, um, anti-drug antibodies. And when it comes to anti-drug antibodies, is it useful to use methotrexate with all biologic agents to decrease the anti-drug antibody response or only with the TNF inhibitors? Uh, and if a patient can't take methotrexate, what else can you use instead of methotrexate? 
So any drug that can give you an anti-drug antibody, and recently we published this, it is very prominent with four out of the five TNF inhibitors, not with etanercept, but with all the antibodies, right? It is also prominent with rituximab, not prominent with uh, tocilizumab. So with rituximab and with TNF inhibitors, I would strongly worry about anti-drug antibodies. And yes, I would use methotrexate in standard doses. To teach a lesson here, I'll point you to, to one of the very first articles on infliximab that appeared in Lancet with Tiny Maney and Elliot as the lead authors on a paper where they gave CA2, the antibody called later infliximab, um, to patients and they used background drugs of methotrexate, 7.5 milligrams a week, or sulfazalazine, 2 grams a day. And those were suppressive against anti-CA2 antibodies. So methotrexate's long been known to suppress the anti-drug antibody response. Sulfazalazine, most of you don't know, is capable as well, not as well studied, but studied in that study from over 23, 4 years ago. Um, we also think that many other drugs are very effective. Uh, we do know that um, mycophenolate, azathioprine, leflunamide, and cyclosporin would also qualify as drugs that would blunt an anti-drug antibody response. So those are your options. You've got a wide array there. That, those are the drugs, in fact, that I use. My go-tos are mainly methotrexate and leflunamide. Occasionally azathioprine. If you're using peglodicase, which is highly immunogenic, right? You get anti-peg antibodies with peglodicase. What are we using? What do the studies show? The mirror study shows methotrexate. A lot of anecdotal studies from um, NYU and other places show the efficacy of, of um, azathioprine. And then the studies from Alabama show mycophenolate works there as well. So those are the drugs that you can use safely. Um, Mark Hirsch asks a really good question. Um, how long does a patient um, have to be off of intravesicular BCG um, to be safe to return to a TNF inhibitor? Or how much after BCG therapy for bladder cancer um, would the infection potentially clear from the uh, urothelium? He has several patients who uh, had been on TNF inhibitors, had to take treatment for bladder cancer, and he's wanting to know what to do, as many of them want to return to the drug that made them well. It's hard to find articles on this and guidance on this, but he can. He found an article that said BCG RNA can be seen for up to 30 months after intravesical uh, BCG treatment. Uh, and my answer to that is it's a BCG TB TNF uh, answer. Meaning, um, if a patient has had a mycobacterial infection um, or invasive fungal infection. I'm almost never going to use a TNF inhibitor, nor am I ever going to return to one. If they had active TB and they were treated with four drugs for active TB, you can go back to the TNF inhibitor, right? But if they had an active, atypical mycobacteria, what we call non-tuberculous mycobacteria, that's, that's MAC, M-A-I, and whatnot, you can never go back to a TNF inhibitor because you never fully eradicate that infection and recurrence is common, especially if on a TNF inhibitor. What drives reactivation and spread of TNF, uh, spread of TB? TNF, 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 and a little bit of interferon. Um, so inhibiting those or where you get into trouble 
everything else, all the other mechanisms, T cells, B cells, IL-6, you can, JAK inhibitors, you can use those safely. Yes, there are reports of TB reactivation, but it's like a log lower or two logs lower compared to TNF. So someone who gets intravesicular BCG is going to have retained antigen for a long time. What happens when you get BCG therapy this way? More than half the patients become PPD positive. None of them become IGRA or quantiferon or T-spot or whatever you use uh, as an IGRA test. Those are all negative. That's how you distinguish PPD positivity from BCG or real infection. What we do know about BCG when it's given its vaccination is that it works really well for the first 10 years. It's highly protective. After that, you often lose your PPD positivity and also the protection, right? So the point is that if someone shows up as an adult, having been vaccinated as a kid, they come from a country where TB was prevalent and now they're PPD positive or IGRA positive, so it's more likely from TB or L latent TB than it is from the BCG, right? So the point is BCG is going to have protection for 10 years, but it may have retention for much longer and you don't know how long. The good news is, Mark, that you've got a lot of options. Say goodbye to the TNF inhibitors. And if you can't say goodbye to the TNF inhibitors, and the patient insists that they want to take it, well then you can use chronic suppressive anti-mycobacterial therapy and I would strongly recommend doing that in conjunction with an infectious disease specialist. Okay? Next case, um, Dr. Agarwal asked in a patient with ankylosing spondylitis, um, which do I start? The patient stable, has a negative uh, TB test. Do I start a TNF inhibitor or an IL-17 inhibitor or now tofacitinib that it is actually approved? And I think it's kind of a basic question, but it's really not an easy question. Uh, Dr. Agarwal, if you really look at this, there's no head-to-head -head studies. Um, and I think it boils down to a few things. One, the cost. Cost to the patient. That often drives the equation here in the United States. Number two, patient preference at oral or injection. If the patient's a weenie and doesn't want to do any injections, then maybe the oral route. Then I think what really drives the equation is this issue of whether skin is more dominant than joints, which case IL-17 would probably be the better of the two choices, or joints are more dominant than the skin. I tend to use TNF inhibitors in that situation. Or if they're both, you can use all three. So it's not an easy uh, question, and but um, I guess I'm thankful that you um, asked me. Um, I appreciate um, the honor of doing that. Our next case is from... Um, Farzan, uh, Farzan Mahmoud from Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Let's see what um, he has to say. Hi, Dr. Kirsch. It's Dr. Mahmoud. Uh, I'm a rheumatologist in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Um, I have a patient with uh, tophaceous gout that I've been seeing for the past six months. Uh, the first time I saw him was with a classic flare-up. I did an aspiration of the big toe, confirmed the gout crystals, started the standard treatment, allopurinol, and in combination with the low-dose prednisone. He continued to have the flare-ups. One time he had like a draining uh, tofus from one of the big toe. Um, 
I kept increasing the allopurinol, his uric acid level has been optimal, like less than, less than five, sometimes even less than four. Um, but he couldn't reduce the prednisone dose and he has stayed on prednisone 10 milligram or higher uh, for the past uh, six months. I even added the colchicine about a couple of months ago. I didn't start it initially because of, he was also on statin. Um, he has, uh, uh, he, I just saw him like a couple of weeks ago. He's still, he had a flare up again and that was in the left bit toe. I aspirated, it still showed up gout crystals. And his most recent uric acid level is 3.6. Okay, uh, Farzan, interesting case. So two things are operative here, right? One is going to be the issue of um, the thing you're treating isn't responding, right? You keep treating this thing and it's not responding. You got to ask yourself the question, are you treating gout? Meaning, is the persistence of that joint flaring and getting worse or being exudative or whatever the problem there is is it gout and the more it's one the same joint and it's not flipping from mtp1 to right to left side if it's always just the left mtp1 i would worry about chronic infection and yes you're going to have retained crystals there for a long time and that could be you know the red herring in this equation so chronic monarticular infection uh, is a possibility and you have to worry about TB, atypical mycobacteria, not NTM, or fungal infection. So you might have to get the orthopedist involved and do a biopsy to find out what else is going on. But it, in fact, the patient has tophaceous gout. And that means the patient has a tremendous total body urate load. You have done well at lowering the intravascular urate load to 3.6. But the patient still has, you know, gobs and gobs of urate. And either you need to get more aggressive and use big boy doses of allopurinol, which I, which I would do, but why not use peglodicase? Why not use peglodicase and get rid of that total body urate load as fast as you can? As you mobilize uric acid by lowering it as aggressively as you are, um, and you could do the allopurinol up to 800 milligrams a day and and... Just follow renal function and, and side effects, and the patient will do just fine. They'll have more and more attacks. Or you could do this faster with peglodicase. The question is, and then peglodicase, you can add in methotrexate, or you can add in mycophenolate, or azathioprine, as we talked about earlier. The question is, what can you do to prevent the um, associated attacks that go along with urate lowering? And you did that. Prednisone or colchicine, you can do both. I've often used prednisone and colchicine. I worry about using prednisone plus non-steroidals. It sort of doubles your GI um, ulceration risk or bleed, GI bleed risk. So, um, but I would get more aggressive in getting rid of the total body urate load and I would worry about an infection. Our, our last case comes from uh, Bruce Hoffman in Philadelphia. This is Bruce Hoffman from Philadelphia. Thank you for your excellent reporting from ULAR. I was interested in the Abitacep study. I note that there was significant improvement in symptoms, as I believe there was in the study with methotrexate. While discussers seem to advise against using DMARDs in patients without clinical synovitis, I wonder how you treat symptomatic arthralgias in patients who are strongly seropositive. All right. 
thank you, Bruce. That's a really good question, one that we commonly face. Um, a plethora of studies in preclinical RA, also called clinically suspect arthralgia, also called undifferentiated arthritis. And the question is, what do I do? First, I want to clarify. He talked about the um, abatacept study presented at ULAR. That's the Apipra study, which is now like the third or fourth trial showing abatacept works in delaying the onset of clinically proven RA or synovitis um, when uh, compared to placebo. Uh, in this study, um, it actually prevented disease in patients who were strongly seropositive with multiple autoantibodies and high titers. Um, he also mentioned the methotrexate study looking positive. In fact, and that's called the treat earlier study, second time that's presented. It failed at its primary endpoint in preventing RA. It did show a unidimensional parameter improvement like HAC improved on those on methotrexate, pain improved on those on methotrexate, MRI improved on the, so, but it did, it failed at its primary endpoint. Methotrexate has failed in early, in, in preclinical RA trials before, so I wouldn't say it's a positive result. How do I treat? Because of the STOP RA study, I would not give clinically suspect arthralgia with a strongly positive CCP, I would not give them hydroxychloroquine. I would not give them methotrexate. I would treat them symptomatically. And then I would escalate to what I think is effective therapy. And at this point, the proven effective therapy is abatacept, maybe rituximab, but really abatacept. And what's going to make me do that? The more features you have that gets closer to RA. So if they are, if they are strong, if they're seropositive, symptomatic management. Strongly seropositive, double seropositive, oh, I'm going to consider it. First degree relative, uh-oh. Acute phase reactants being elevated, uh-oh. No swollen joints, but imaging evidence of inflammation by ultrasound or MR, it's beyond uh-oh, and I'm using a DMARD mainly. I'm going to use Abitasa. So, Again, there are no clear guidelines on this, and the recent survey we did on Room Now said that most of you are looking for guidance on this particular issue. Anyway, ask Kush anything, click on the blue box, send in your cases or questions. We'll discuss them here on the podcast. Take good care of yourselves. Bye-bye.